Now, we are, uh, for those of you that are visiting today and are watching online, we are in a series uh, called The Songs of Christmas, and we're looking at Zechariah's song today, and Zechariah is the father of John the Baptist, and we'll come to that in a couple of minutes. And uh, so we're going to be looking at that, and if you have a Bible or a device, a phone, iPad, uh, you want to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 67 to 76, or 79, rather, 67 to 79. And uh, if you're new to the Bible, this is what you want to do. You want to go to about two-thirds toward the end, and you'll come to the New Testament, and it begins with Matthew, then Mark, and then Luke. So while you're getting that and getting organized, and if that doesn't work, look in the table of contents. I always find that helpful. So uh, we always do these, um, well, we don't always, but we started doing these morning groaners. And uh, so I have two today, just two. The first one is this. Are you ready? You got your groaner thing going on here? What do you call a line of bunnies moving backwards? You ready? A receding hairline. (laughs) So many things to say. So many things to say, so little time. And this in keeping with our topic today. What does John the Baptist and Peter the rabbit have in common? What does John the Baptist and Peter the rabbit have in common? They both have the same middle name. See, that's what I'm after right there, that uh. By the way, for those of you who didn't get it, the. Some of you are going, oh, yeah, right. Okay, let's stand together and uh, let's, uh, let's read. Uh, I'm reading the red. And by the way, by the way, interesting text. Talk about grammar in the Bible. There are six verses before we actually get a period. So I had to break it up accordingly. So this is um, uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 67. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. To show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that we swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Let's pray. Father, again, we're grateful and thankful for your love in Jesus Christ, and we're grateful for the Holy Spirit, who takes everything that you've accomplished in Jesus and makes it applicable and available in our lives. 
And so we pray now that you would grant us the Holy Spirit to speak clearly, to hear clearly, to understand clearly. And Lord, that as we leave this place, that in our relationships, in our homes, in our neighborhoods, in the places of work and recreation, that we would live out the truth of your word and of your love and as being disciples of Jesus Christ in meaningful, tangible, physical ways. For Christ's name and in his name we pray. Amen. Why don't you be seated? Now, before we get into the text, before we actually get to our song, I think it might be helpful to get a little bit of background, especially for those of you that are not super familiar with the Bible. So we want to talk about who is Zechariah. Now, everything we really need to know about Zechariah is found in Luke's Gospel, chapter 1, verses 5 to 25. And if you want to go there, you can sort of follow along. So first of all, we understand that Zechariah is married to a, a woman by the name of Elizabeth. And there are two things that the Bible says about them. That first of all, that they are righteous and they are blameless. And the second thing is is that they are advanced in years. In other words, they are old. Now, I'm not saying they're old. Actually, Zechariah himself says that they are old in verse 18. So here's my question to us this morning. How old is old? How old is old? Never you mind. (laughs) Ushers, can you throw this lady out, please? So, see, you're messing with me now. So here's another question. Here's another question. So how old, so Zachariah says of him and Elizabeth, they are old. The Bible says they are advanced in years, okay? How old do you think Zachariah is? Uh, What, how, loud, loud. Around 80? Around 70 or 80? Okay, me too. I assumed that Zechariah is somewhere between 70 and 80. Now, did you know that Pastor Kevin just had a birthday? This past Thursday. You don't need to applaud. It's not that important. (laughs) Do you know how old Pastor Kevin is? By the way, stop for a moment. He's very old. And you're wondering how I know this. Because the Bible tells me so. Now, uh, now Pastor Kevin turned, get ready. Now, just between us friends, okay? Just between us friends. 55. This past Thursday. Happy birthday. Now, we know that that's old. Yes, it is. We also know this, that Zechariah and Elizabeth were under 50 years of age. And they were considered old. Well, considering that the um, life expectancy at the time of Jesus was around 35 years of age. So we know that Zechariah and Elizabeth, or Zechariah himself, was under 50. And here's why we know from Numbers chapter 8, verse 25. Because we know that it was the law... That no priest was allowed to serve beyond the age of 50. And Zechariah was still serving as a priest. So Pastor Kevin, if you'd have been a Jewish priest, you'd have been retired five years ago. 
Now, old is not necessarily a liability, but it does add to the drama of the story. The other thing that we're told about uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth uh, that sort of adds to the plot is that they had no children and they could have no children. And the Bible says that Elizabeth was barren. Now, along with Zechariah and Elizabeth, as with many of the biblical characters, what we learn from them is this. We learn what it means to live in the face of disappointment. And secondly, we learn how to live in the face of disappointment. Now, the third thing that we need to know about Zechariah is that Zechariah is a priest. He's an active priest. But there's something in the story that we're not told, and is this, that uh, Zechariah, and like most priests, served only, get this, only two weeks per year in the temple. Only two weeks. Can you imagine? They used to say we only work on Sundays. If you want more, you pay overtime. These guys only work two weeks a year. And by the way, Zechariah was one... He belonged to one group of priests of 24 divisions. At Zechariah's time, listen to this, there were 18,000, that's right, 18,000 priests. And he only served once, twice, two weeks per year. Now what that means is this, that Zechariah as a priest, his role as a priest was somewhat obscure and really of no consequence. But verse 9 of Luke 1 says this, According to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. Now, Proverbs tells us this. Proverbs 16.33 tells us that the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. Now, remember what I told you last week, that God remembers, that God remembers us. God remembers me and you. And remember that our personal sense of obscurity and inconsequence is not lost on God. And in His grace, God picks an important moment in Zechariah's career to make his move. And we could say, pun intended, God picks a moment that is pregnant with meaning. And so while Zechariah is doing his priestly thing, burning the incense, all of a sudden an angel appears to Zechariah at the right side of the altar of incense. Now, Zechariah's reaction is proof that he was not expecting anything unusual to take place. He was sort of going through the motions. You see, that's the way God is. God appears to us in the routine of our lives. Somebody talked about it's the miraculous in the mundane. God speaks and upsets the way things are. 
That's what Christmas does. That's what the gospel does. It upsets people's lives. Now, there is some irony in the text. The first thing it says in verse 12 is said, and Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. No kidding. And then it says, but the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. Did you get it? Did you get it? Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. What was Zechariah's prayer? Matter of fact, what was Zechariah doing? Praying for a child. I mean, he is praying against the odds. Both he and his wife are old, and it's too late. The clock has run out. This is like Pastor Kevin and Leanne. Praying for a child. It's the same thing, only different. I mean, Zachariah is a man of faith. I mean, you've got to admit, if Pastor Kevin was praying for another child, you would got to admit that that would be an incredible act of faith. Or stupidity. But here's the question. What is Zachariah really afraid of? Is he afraid of the angel, or is he afraid that his prayer is actually going to be answered? And here's another irony in the text. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words. Because of Zechariah's unbelief, He will not be able to speak until the child is born. Now, just back up the bus for a moment. Now, he's been praying against the odds that they're going to have a son. But when it happens, and they're told that they're going to have a baby, he doesn't believe it. There's a hilarious story in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 12 tells the story. And Peter, Herod, has put Peter in prison. And the Bible tells us these words in in verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but now get this. But earnest prayer for him was being made to God by the church. You got that? Okay, now. So the story goes that there is this miraculous intervention, and an angel rescues Peter from jail. When Peter comes to his senses that he's actually out of jail, he goes to the house where the church is meeting and praying. He raps on the door, and a servant girl by the name of Rhoda comes out and hears Peter's voice, knows it's Peter. Do not open the door, but leaves him standing there. She goes back into the house and tells the people who are praying earnestly for Peter's release, that, hey, Peter is standing at the door, and this is their response. You are out of your mind. (laughs) 
Have you ever done that? Have you ever prayed a prayer and wanted it to happen, but really never expected it to happen? I have. I definitely have. But back to our story. And here's another thing that isn't in the text, is Zachariah's deafening silence. Now, because of his unbelief, he's not going to be able to speak until his boy is born. Now, there is a, there's a play on words in the text, and the play on words is simply this. From the Old Testament to the New Testament is what is referred to as the 400 silent years. What it means is that from, from Malachi, who was the last Old Testament prophet, God has not spoken through a prophet for 400 years. For four centuries, there has been no word from God. There has been no revelation. There has been silence and spiritual darkness. And the coming of John the Baptist is the first time that God is going to speak through a prophet in 400 years. Correction, 400 years and nine months. And that brings us to our text, to Zechariah's song. And our text functions as a bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, I'm assuming that most of you know that we call these songs of Christmas, but they really weren't sung. They're actually prophetic sayings, but we just call them songs of Christmas. For example, it says in verse 67, and Zechariah, filled with the Holy Spirit, prophesied, saying. Now, here's what happens. John the Baptist is born. It's the eighth day of his birth, after his birth. He's eight days old. It is time for circumcision. And at the time of circumcision is when the boy is named. And it is typical and customary that the boy, the firstborn boy, is to be called after his father, which is Zechariah. And when they begin to proceed along these lines, Elizabeth speaks up and says, no, his name is John. Now, if your family is anything like my family, a fuss breaks out. A family fuss over what the kid's name is going to be. And Zacharias says, give me some points and gives motion to give something to write down. And he scribbles down on this slate or this thing. He says, his name is John. And at that moment, his mouth is opened. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth is this song, is this prophecy. Now, it's called the Benedictus. It's Latin for praise be. But that, to me, that sounds incredibly religious and incredibly formal. I envision Zechariah being filled with the Holy Spirit. His mouth is open for the first time in nine months, and he just blurts this stuff out. 
Matter of fact, I would say that if we were there, we would have probably said, like, Zachariah, take a breath, take a pause. And he gives us this song. And he says four things. And four things that I think that if we pay attention to, and I'm not going to dwell on them today because I want to move on. Four things that he says, first of all, that God has come to redeem his people. Number two, that the coming of Jesus as Messiah is the visitation of God in the world. Number three, that he's coming to redeem. He's coming to restore. He's coming to set things to right. He is going to put things back together again. Now, we probably need to say that Zechariah is probably not thinking spiritual redemption. Zechariah is actually thinking physical and political rescue from out from under the brutality of the Romans. And the last thing that he says is that his people, and when he refers to his people, Zechariah is referring to Israel. And that's important because we need to understand that we as the church are by extension a part of Israel, but we do not replace Israel. And that's more important than you think it is, and I can't, don't have time to get into it, so I'm going to leave it there. But then Zechariah mentions two people, Father Abraham and King David. These are the two major periods in Israel's history. The time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and the time and period of the kings. These are the two pillars on which Israel's hope is built, and ultimately the hope of the world is built. And the promise to the patriarch Abraham is simply this. Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars of the sky and the sands of the seashore. In other words, there are going to be so many you're not going to be able to count them. And the promise to King David is that he would have someone from his family, from his line, from his genealogy that would sit upon his throne forever. This is referred to as the Abrahamic covenant and the Davidic covenant. And so Israel's most famous king is David. And it says that he has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Now, here's here's a problem. It's the problem with Christmas. It's the problem with Jesus. It's the problem with promises and the problem with gifts. And it's this. We don't appreciate something that doesn't meet a need or satisfy a desire. For example, a couple of years ago, for Christmas, I received three tire gauges. Now, why didn't they give me four? One for each. They gave me three tire. Like, what do you do with three tire gauges? And the other thing I received, are you ready? Is a bright green, lime green, satin, Santa boxer shorts. Now load yourself up on that image. You, what do you do? 
Like you can't even show those puppies off. But many people look at Jesus and the Christmas story with the same uselessness. Because we don't know that we have a terminal illness called sin. And we don't believe that we have a fearful enemy called Satan. We talk about Jesus as the meek and mild Jesus. Well, Zechariah says that Jesus is the great ox horn of salvation. And with it, with that horn, he will put down God's enemies and ours. Twice in the text it says that he, has, he will deliver us from the hand of our enemies. Two times. And this ox horn, Jesus, is to be feared. And so much for the meek and mild Jesus. And then the greatest patriarch, Father Abraham. Now, the promise made to Abraham refers to the Abrahamic covenant. That through a son, Isaac, would come all of these descendants greater than the stars of the sky and greater than the sands of the seashore. But it's not really Isaac. That ultimately the seed of Abraham is none other than Jesus Christ. And when you look at Zechariah's song, Zechariah's song is more about Jesus than it's about John. There's only two verses, actually, 76 and 77, that actually specifically refer to John the Baptist. All the rest is about Jesus. And what we learn out of that is this, is that the Christmas story includes not one birth, but two births. John the Baptist and Jesus. Now, Zechariah refers to his son John the Baptist as the prophet of the Most High. But Jesus refers to John the Baptist as there being no one greater than John the Baptist. Matthew chapter 11, 11. Now why is he greater? And why is he the greatest? And why is there none greater than him? Because he is the last of the Old Testament prophets. You see, John the Baptist is going to die before Jesus does. And anybody that dies before Jesus does is actually in the Old Testament. Whether they're actually in the book, the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi or not. But the other thing is John the Baptist's role will be unique. Just as John the Baptist's birth announcement precedes Jesus' birth announcement, so John the Baptist will be the forerunner to Jesus. And John the Baptist did three things. First of all, he prepared the way. And Zechariah puts it this way, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways. And then he cleared the way to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of sins. And then he got out of the way. And John says, he must increase, but I must decrease. A little girl sitting in a church, obviously this one, and looked at the stained glass window, was looking at a stained glass window, and she said to her mom, she said, Mommy, what is a saint? 
And the mom, quick on her feet, said, a saint is somebody who lets the light shine through. And that was John the Baptist. He wasn't the light. He let the light shine through. And as great as John the Baptist was, he was only a witness to the light who was coming into the world, Jesus. Now, Zechariah says three things about Jesus. He gives us three images. He says, first of all, that Jesus is sunrise, that he's light, and he is the way of peace. He says, first of all, that the sunrise shall visit us from on high. Now, I want you to listen carefully. In Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, it says this. But for you who fear my name, here it comes, the sun of righteousness, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. Now, I want to show you a picture of the, the wings of sunrise. You see the wings of sunrise? And I want to show you the wings of sunset. You see it? You ever been on a beach over a huge lake or ocean or some body of huge, significant body of water, and as the sun just slips down on the horizon, is just in the sky and in the water, its wings go out. And the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. And then Psalm says this. Psalm 91.4, you know it, many of you. He will cover you with his pinions. He will cover you with his feathers. And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and buckler. This is a... Jewish prayer show. I borrowed it from a lady in Cornerstone this week to make an illustration. Understand this, that God does not cover us by his blood. He cleanses us by his blood but he covers us by his protecting presence. There is a really unusual text in 1 Corinthians 7.14. You can look it up later when you get home. It says this, For the unbelieving husband is made holy or sanctified by his believing wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy or sanctified by her believing husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. Now, that's a strange text. So here's my question, and here's something to think about. Is this saying that if I'm a believer and my wife isn't, that she's covered and sanctified and made holy by my faith? 
Is it saying that if she's a believer and I'm not, that I am made holy and covered, sanctified by her faith? And does it mean that our children who are, whether they are in the Lord or not serving the Lord or their faith has gone underground and it's dormant, that they are covered, that they are sanctified, that they are made holy by believing parents? Now, I don't know because it's a bizarre text. But if it is the case, Can you imagine the hope that is contained in that? There's a story in Luke chapter 8 of the woman who had a hemorrhaging, a blood hemorrhaging problem, and the Bible says she had it for 12 years, 12 years, living. And the Bible tells us in Luke, Luke tells us that She says, if I can touch the hem of his garment, I'll be healed. It is very unlikely that what she's talking about there is this robe. Everybody knows that every Jewish man wore a prayer shawl. And a prayer shawl, I showed you the wings of sunrise, I showed you the wings of sunset, but I'm told that the ends of a prayer shawl are called the wings. And I stand to be corrected here, but I'm pretty confident that what she touched was the wings of Jesus' prayer shawl. And the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in his wings. And he covers us. He covers you. He covers you. And you. And you. And you. And me. And if I interpret 1 Corinthians right, put your seatbelt on. If you have an unbelieving spouse, he covers him or her. And her unbelieving children, and does it extend to children's children and children's children's children? I don't know. But he covers us. Do you know the other thing that's interesting? In Exodus chapter 17, verse 15, the Bible says that Moses built an altar. And he named it, the Lord is my banner. And then the Song of Solomon picks it up and he says, He brought me to his banqueting house and his banner over me is love. Doesn't this look like a banner? And his banner over me is love. And then Zechariah gives us a second image and that is of light. And light does three things. It's essential for human life, but it's revelatory. Light helps us to see our environment. If you don't turn the lights on, there's going to be other problems. But with light, we see ourselves. How many of you have ever enjoyed a romantic candlelight dinner? Raise your hand. It's not wrong. It's okay. You're romantics among us. Do you know, you know why we like romantic candlelight dinners? Because we all look better under low light. (laughs) 
And with light, we see Jesus coming toward us. And then the other thing is this, that light dispels darkness. You know what scientists tell us? Scientists tell us that there is no such thing as darkness. It's just the absence of light. And then the last thing that I want to leave with us today is the third image. And Zechariah says, to guide our feet in the way of peace. Ephesians says that Jesus has made peace. That he has come and preached peace. And Ephesians 2.14 says that for he himself is our peace. Now I want you to say that because it's going to matter in just a moment. For he himself is our peace. Say it with me. For he himself is our peace. Peace. Say it again. For he himself is our peace. And the optimal statement in that verse is this. For he himself. Now, most of us are familiar with Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. We've quoted it. We've had it quoted to us. And the peace of God which passes or transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we know that peace is shalom. Frederick Buechner said this, and this is important. In Hebrew, peace, shalom, means fullness. It means having everything you need to be holy and happily yourself. Let me read it again. In Hebrew, peace, shalom, means fullness means having everything you need to be holy and happily yourself. Here's why. Because Hebrews, sorry, because Philippians chapter 4, 9 says this. 4, 7 says that he will give you a peace that passes all understanding. But 4.9 says, and the God of peace will be with you. You see, peace, shalom, is not some commodity. It's not some emotional euphoria, euphoria or sentimental feeling that God gives us. No. In giving us peace, God gives us himself. For he Himself is our peace. For he himself is our peace. Because he is the God of peace. Peace with God. Peace with ourselves. And peace with others. So I want you to close your eyes. I'm going to invite the musicians to come. And as they come, I have a question for us. And the question is, are you, are we, at peace with others? Or are we at odds with them? Secondly, are we at peace with ourselves? 
or are we at odds with ourselves? Remember what Beekner said, peace means fullness. It means having everything you need to be holy and happily yourself. So are you, are we at peace with ourselves? Or are we at odds with ourselves? And lastly, and most importantly, are we at peace with God? Or are we at odds with God? And I know that applies to people who have not said yes to God's offer of love and forgiveness. You're not yes yet made a decision to become a Christ follower or a disciple of Jesus. But I've been around long enough to know that as Christians, we too can be at odds with God. We're angry at Him, frustrated, disappointed. And so, are we at peace with God? Or at odds? Father, in this holy moment, on this holy ground, not because it's a building, because the cement is somehow holy or the carpet. No. It's holy because you're here and we're here. That's what makes it sacred. And in this holy place, and on this holy ground, You said that the Son of Righteousness would rise with healing in His wings. That You would cover us. And as a part of that covering, You would give us a peace that not just passes all understanding, not some commodity, not some feeling, not some emotional euphoria, but You would give us Yourself that you would walk with us. And so I pray now, Holy Spirit, in these next couple of moments, that you would speak to our hearts. You would speak to our lives. Have your way in us for a moment.